Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 11 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels, both in legends and canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will continue through Star Wars Thrawn, covering chapters 19 and 20, and I'm joined today once again by my friends Douglas Dubois and Samuel Sturmer as we wrap up our two-episode <laughs> series together. Doug Sturm, it's been too long. It's been too long. <laughs> it's been a while. Hey! <laughs> hey, hey, Babu! <laughs> I mean, 15 minutes later, but this episode will be in the future. I'm excited to, to dive into chapter 19 especially. Uh, mm. it's, I, I think it's probably one of my favorites in the book, or at least favorites so far, which we'll, we'll get into all of that. I'll give my chapter summary and we can get right into it. Okay. Arinda Price convinces Driller to assign her to visit Grand Moff Tarkin, giving the impression she will promote Higher Sky's agenda to him. However, upon meeting with Tarkin, Price tells him she's there on her own behalf, and reveals that Higher Skies has been stealing data from various politicians. Looking to strike a deal with Tarkin, Price gives him incriminating evidence against Higher Skies and Moff Gadi. In return for the information, she asks for the governorship of Lothal. When Tarkin remains unconvinced, Price gives him files on all of Lothal's resources, mines, social structures, and more. Impressed that Price sold out her homeworld to the Empire, Tarkin makes her acting governor of Lothal. At the Insham Dojo, Price has the ISB arrest Wahir for treason and conspiracy against the Empire. On Coruscant, Eli and Thrawn are both promoted, and Thrawn is given command of the ISD Chimera. Which gave me chills to read that last yeah. bit, because I love it. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a great chapter. Uh, before I get into it, yeah, any any thoughts on the chapter as a whole? I mean, this is, I don't know, the, the whole, even just reading the summary, I was like, ah, oh, there was so much that happened, but it was just so good. Yeah, certainly was one of the better chapters here. The whole sort of introduction of Tarkin and the two getting promoted and then the Chimera at the end and all the Wahir business is just it just blew up and it was a yeah it's a crazy chapter yeah that fits so much into this chapter and the initial monologues are one of the things I really enjoy uh, about this book and there's always little bits of foreshadowing and I guess they're sort of hinting towards Arinda's potential changes in loyalty and and some of those sort of traits coming out in her and that but it doesn't even begin to cover half of what happens in the chapter almost <laughs> yeah the interesting part about this chapter was that you know as i'm flipping through the pages i think the majority of it was just the conversation between price and tarkin mm. which I mean, there was so much that went on here. I don't want to, to get ahead too quickly, but having some extended exposure to Grand Moff Tarkin in this chapter was, I, I think he's one of the most underrated villains in Star Wars. And it was just, it was good to be reminded of his power through the eyes of Price in this episode. You know, we got Palpatine earlier in the book. Uh, now we get Grand Moff Tarkin, kind of like two of the of the big three in the Empire. What did you guys think about kind of like the introduction to Tarkin in this chapter? I thought it was pretty amazing, really. The whole sort of description of what they did for him and the, the conversation that Arinda had. It sort of just showed how much Tarkin was this boss guy he's like one of the the top dogs and yeah it was it was really well done i feel so lucky i think one of the first couple of episodes that i was involved in involved the palpatine exchanges yeah. <laughs> and and now i get to be involved when uh, when we sort of get our, our teeth into a bit of talk and and they're both characters that you can't read their dialogue without that voice in your head and that, that sort yeah. of picture in your mind of of them in the moment and they're just fantastic characters. Definitely. I, I'm of the mind that I think Tarkin deserves like more more about him, like more screen time, more you know, mm. maybe like a, a show or some I know there's the book. Maybe his Tarkin. Own book. Uh, yeah. Maybe <laughs> maybe his own book. <laughs> Not that one, no. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, I don't know. He he's such a such a great character that we unfortunately did not see a lot of in the movies, and I'm glad that the Clone Wars, you know, brought him back for I think at least one arc. That, yeah. that Citadel arc I think it involves him quite yeah. heavily, doesn't it? Where 
Yeah, where he has to escape, I think, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah, and then he was also like involved in like Ahsoka's trial and stuff like that. So, yeah. so it, it was great. Before we get to because him though, um, we we start off the chapter where Price is is in this other senator's apartment, and she had bought the senator's wife like this two thousand credit bottle of wine to try and like you know get get on their good side. It was uh, it was a small scene where not not much happened there, but the scene after that driller is kind of just baffled that she would spend that much money on a bottle of wine and we get a a kind of like a thrawn like moment here from price where she had studied the species of the the senator and his wife and found that they're you know they're very devoted to family and that price's gift to uh, to their family kind of pretty much just gave them like a one-way ticket into price's pocket where they're able to share this a great bottle of wine together, some great family time, and they can credit that to Price. And, you know, Price kind of was was studying their background and seeing, like, her in to get them into kind of, like, her, uh, her pocket, which I thought was a good, you know, good, smart moment from Price. One thing I have noticed with her throughout the, the book so far is her sort of, the background reading that she does is pretty intense, and she really makes sure she knows her target or whoever she's speaking to as much as possible and here we see it in the way that she wants to exploit them and get a sort of invitation to their place yeah because i i think that driller and price had talked about like that they that she pretty much had access to that senator's office now um and we we see some ulterior motives from higher skies and driller here where he's uh pretty much going to have Price get information on the Navy's budget that the senator has and to see where their funds are going towards like the secret project that they that the Navy has got going on wonder what that could be uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but but driller lies to price here and price recognizes it where he's saying like you know that would be important so we can see how much money is left for schools and hospitals and price is like you're full of shit <laughs> she didn't say that but she thought of it um and we see Driller here kind of vastly underestimating Price and not even suspecting that she might have uh, suspicions of, of higher skies not being what they're advertised to be. Yeah, I really like how Price starts off in this chapter. First of all, you get to see that sort of really astute political manipulation that, uh, that she does with the uh, with the senator, but then also the way she's reading the situation with Driller and she's full of contempt for him because she thinks that that he underestimates her and she's obviously got um, much greater plans afoot than uh, than he realises. He has absolutely no idea that she's sort of this hard-working person who does whatever she can to get what she wants and he therefore doesn't see her as anyone that sort of pays attention to anything. Yeah, yeah. He he doesn't suspect her as as a threat, which is you know to to his detriment potentially. Um, and and she's able to manipulate him here to get that meeting with Grand Moff Tarkin, which uh, leads us to the next scene of the the chapter, which is the scene of the chapter, yeah. where I love this quote here that introduces this scene, and it says. And I quote, there were, Arenda learned, many tricks politicians and military types used to intimidate, pressure, and otherwise put visitors at a disadvantage. Tarkin knew them all. And we're not even a few sentences into the scene, and I'm already, I was already pumped, like, oh, let's go. This yeah. is like, we, we're already introduced to just how cunning of a character Tarkin is. And, and I'll, I'll give a little bit about this next part where it notes that Price is, is walking down the, uh, the long walk from the door to his, uh, of his office to his desk. And she's noticing uh, objects on the shelves that are mementos from his past victories. And I quote, a procession of reminders of his power. And I've got a few things here. First, how big is Tarkin's office for there to be this <laughs> long, dramatic walk <laughs> from the door to his desk? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it has to be quite um, a size, yeah. Exactly, because, you know, are we talking like a 100 meters? I don't, I don't even know. Um, we see a couple of similarities here between Tarkin and Palpatine, where, you know, Palpatine's throne room had this long, intimidating walk down to the, the throne, and now we have this long, intimidating walk to Tarkin's desk. The biggest thing here for me is just, like, reading about, like, his menace and his power. It's just a great reminder of, like, how badass he is, where in The New Hope, for example, he was 
kind of the big villain. Like Vader, you know, his yeah. fight with Obi-Wan and all that, but you know, but Tarkin was kind of the mastermind in in that movie, which I just I I want this guy to get more credit cuz he's so good. Even in that boardroom scene on the Death Star where um, Vader's choking uh choking the imperial officer out, it's Tarkin that shuts him down quickly, you know. It's that enough of that sort of business, you know. He's he's a powerful man. If he can speak to Vader like that, then, you know, you've got a peer, aren't you? Mm, exactly. He, he is one of those sort of characters that is, is a powerful man. And especially even in Rogue One, where he takes all the credit for the Death Star. Um, and Krennic is left feeling like, what? what is going on? This is mine. <laughs> yeah, this he's just a powerful guy and uses these intimidation tactics, even in an office, which we then learn to be not even his primary office yeah um he's a bad man he's a <laughs> force to be quite that guy. yeah imagine you're yeah. imagine you're you know presenting your life's work and then someone just goes oh i'll be taking control of this facility immediately <laughs> <laughs> okay you're standing here amongst my achievement what a fantastic show yeah. Oh, I love it. That's, I mean, I will say just like a tangent, but Rogue One, for, I think it's my favorite Star Wars movie, just going to say it. And I think my favorite character in that movie has got to be Tarkin. Like, I love mm. that we got a lot of him in that movie. Um, it was this so good and just a, a great reminder of, you know, he, he was one of the Empire's triumvirate, really, like Palpatine, Vader, Tarkin. Like, mm, yeah. you know, they were kind of like the big three that we, you know, I guess not everyone would know, but... When it, when it comes down to it, you know, like kind of like the only other man that Vader would answer to, you know, it's just a, a great, mm. great character. And, and especially um, uh, CGI, Peter Cushing looks scarier than the real yeah. Peter Cushing. <laughs> for better or for worse. He's, he's a scary <laughs> bloke. <the> yeah. <laughs> I think using that technology to bring Peter Cushing to the screen again, though, was was crucial in, in yeah. getting that menace across. Yeah. When it when it panned to the back of his head and then he turned around and you just see mm. his gaunt face, just a brilliant scene. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of gaunt face, you know, I, I think Zahn here nails the description of Tarkin, mm. where he he spot on got Palpatine's description earlier in the book, and I think here too he he did such a good job where he says, and I quote, "The gaunt faced, gray white hair, thin lips, and steely eyes were like an image of waiting death." The stillness of his expression and body as he watched her approach was like that of a jungle predator preparing to strike, which is just, it's like almost poetic. Zahn nailed that description here where uh, I, I don't think anyone could have described uh, Tarkin better than, than he did here. In my notes, I've, I've highlighted the exact same passage and just put, so mm. Tarkin, I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Zahn, he, he manages to do it in, in sort of few words. He doesn't yeah. go on for multiple sentences describing him. He says it in pretty much one, um, just with a couple of descriptive words and gets it spot on. It's brilliant. Yeah, the words that he chooses to use are, are just so telling. And yeah. I think he really just, he, props to props to Zahn. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> he does such a great job. But yeah, we're back to Price and, and she kind of pulls a, a move that we wouldn't expect where she says that she's there on her own behalf. And... She offered him a data card with information and was promising him more information. She comes in kind of guns blazing. Um, and I thought it was after he gets the, the initial data card from her and he kind of studies her for a, li a little bit and then he allows her to sit. And I kind of like just let out a breath like, oh, OK, she passed, you know, the first test, you know, level one <laughs> complete. Yeah. She's allowed to sit and not you know, told to leave. So Tarkin can recognize that she's, you know, she's playing her cards right. And we find out that the data card that Price has from Higher Sky containing their like brochure and their agenda contains a data thief program and this isn't the one that she had given him but uh, one that she tells him uh, that she has and and you know he identifies the data thief program that kind of um, tells us that any politician that she had visited beforehand on higher sky's behalf had fell victim to that data thief program and i think it's it's kind of a, a telling moment here from price to tarkin where she's caught his attention that she's more than willing to betray her employer 
And, you know, she's telling him straight up that she wants to make a deal that would benefit them both. And it seems that Price is pretty prepared and pretty confident coming in to confront one of the most powerful men in the empire. Yeah, it's obvious that she's come prepared and she's got into her mind that she is now a singular person trying to do what she can to get to the next level. Um, And so she's prepared this, she's betrayed the higher skies group and is out for personal gain and the confidence she brings into the office is almost up with Thrawn's level confidence uh, as you she's facing off against one of the scariest blokes in the Empire and she's sort of just hounding him with all this data card I've got this and that and um, and he's listening to her so it's a really sort of amazing thing that uh, Arinda's doing. Yeah, I'd taken much the same from that, the, the parallel between Thrawn when he was introduced to the Emperor and here we've got Arinda in in front of Tarkin. Uh, just that sort of supreme confidence that, yes, this is an intimidating situation, but I feel like I've got the, the cards to play and I, I, I can, you know, I can join this game of poker. Um, <laughs> and, you know, do, do we buy it from Arinda yet that she's as... As astute or as confident as Thrawn, I think she does play it out pretty well here. She shows a fair bit of moxie. Mm. I think there's there's another parallel between those two scenes of Thrawn meeting Palpatine and Price meeting Tarkin, where Tarkin looks through the data card that she had offered him, containing like the first set of information, and he looks up, and all he says is interesting, and that's exactly. Palpatine's response when Thrawn name dropped Skywalker and like in the face of those big reveals these two guys are just so good at maintaining their their cool where all they say is just interesting which is not what Thrawn was expecting probably and, and definitely not what Price was expecting and we see a few moments in this interaction where you know she kind of at moments becomes a little bit disheartened at kind of you know, it takes a lot to impress Tarkin, where we can tell that the the tricks that she usually pulls on other politicians, it's going to take a lot of those and then some to, to kind of get through to Tarkin. But she does catch his attention when she tells him that she thinks higher skies are working with rebels, uh, which was kind of a, a, it was a cool moment to see that, you know, again, this is we're starting to see some mention of rebels in the in the mm. Empire. And she tells Tarkin that um, that there is another data thief program layered on top of Higher Skies program that was created by Yularen and Thrawn so that they could keep an eye on Higher Skies um, dealings and the information that they're gathering. So, and this is her her appeal to Tarkin, saying, you know, I've got Thrawn and Yularen on my side, which Tarkin is kind of skeptical about uh she he pretty much thinks she's just name dropping a couple of powerful people and thinking that he'll believe it but as their conversation goes on she ends up giving tarkin a recording of her call with moff gadi uh, when gadi was demanding for the files on tarkin to be able to take him down and this is where she tells tarkin that in return for all of that information she just gave she wants to be the governor of lethal and at that drop when she says yeah oh and i also want the uh oh i don't know governorship of lothal i was like oh (laughs) there it is (laughs) that's what she's been aiming for because i know in rebels and we know how she ends up as as governor of lothal like i i was not expecting her to give that answer um so when i read that for the first time i was very blown away i was like oh wait she like because i had thought that you know she would never want to go back there and there she is this is like her plan to to make her big return um as the most powerful person on lothal i was blown away from that moment i was sort of surprised because yeah i assumed that she'd escape lothal to come to Coruscant and be in one of the top elite on Coruscant rather than back on lothal but clearly her her motives and heritage are bringing her back to where she everything went wrong for her at the start and yeah it's it's amazing to assume that this was her plan all along yeah i mean her desire to get some revenge on on Gardi and ranking is obviously a, a huge driver for her mm-hmm. yeah i i just i loved the roller coaster of that whole exchange between um price and and Tarkin it was fantastic. You, you get some parallels, I guess, to to the Thrawn and, and Palpatine conversation. The 
the dropping the word rebels in there was a bit similar to the yeah, Anakin Skywalker cool. yeah. mic drop moment, you know, and yeah. uh, and he, I think it says for the briefest of moments, a flicker of emotion crossed Tarkin's face. Then the mask <laughs> fell back into place. Rebels, yeah. he repeated. Rebels. <laughs> it's just brilliant. And then, you know, and then he makes her sweat quite a bit as well. Like, you can actually see the the veneer yeah. almost break, and she's she's like, hold it together, you know, keep going, keep going, keep giving him what what you think he wants. And, um, yeah, eventually we, we, we see her whole plan revealed, and it, it's quite good. It's a goodie. And he makes her really work for it. Like he's a hard man to mm. please. He, she gives him one thing, then he says, or he sort of implies, is this it? She gives him yeah. another thing. She keeps giving him stuff until finally sort of the big thing at the end was that Gardi is sort of plotting against him. And Tarkin is obviously, they sort of, they have a, a stronger rivalry than she thought is what they said. Yeah, so Tarkin made her work and finally with all that information... Um, she then goes for the big one and asks to be governor. He's constantly showing her who's boss, isn't he, throughout this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I love when she she says that, uh, and I quote, she was 90% certain she'd read this man correctly, but that remaining 10% could make or break her. Yeah. <laughs> I just I, I thought that was so, we know who we're dealing with here, and she knows who she's dealing with here. Uh, and like you'd said, there are many times in this conversation where she almost broke. Because he sets the bar very high for what he expects, but you know, also props to Price for being mm. able to keep having you know, plan A, B, C, D. You know, she always had the next step of information to give him. She came and prepared. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Highlights her um, intelligence and drive that she wants to get to where she's going. Yeah, she's Definitely. she's aiming high, and uh, yeah, she's she's prepared well for the opportunity, and nothing's going to stop her. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and she does kind of get what she wants at the end where, you know, she did end up selling out Lothal. <laughs> she sold out her home world. And, you know, she said, uh, and I quote, I prefer to think of it as a loyalty to my new home world. And, and just like that. And Tarkin's impressed. You know, she's kind of passed all the tests and, you know, he makes her acting governor. And that it was just a great, a great interaction between those two characters. And, you know, props to Price, definitely. She's come really far, and now she's finally where she wants to be. And, you know, he, he calls her Governor Price. And it just, I got chills reading that. Yeah. I was like, where are the air horns at? You know? <laughs> got a good little ring to it, yeah. He still leaves her in no doubt as to who's the boss, though, and that, you know, he'll be using her as he sees fit, uh, mm. which she just has to take as part of getting what she wants. Yeah, because he's only he he only makes her acting governor, so there's still some leeway for her to either, you know, really solidify her spot as the governor, like uh, the full title, or you know, Tarkin could easily just take away what he just mm-hmm. granted her. So, you know, he he definitely still does have the upper hand, but you got to give props to Price for being as prepared mm-hmm. as she was. Price, she's sort of given a itinerary that she has maybe six months to a year of acting governor before she then is given full leadership of governor. Um, but she has to sort of stay on Coruscant for the majority of the first year. And I think secretly she quite likes that. She would like to be mm. in the upper levels with the elite for, for a while before then making a, her way back to Lothal. Yeah, well, I mean, she's yeah. using her, her knowledge of Lothal and her knowledge of the mining industry in particular on... Lethal to get that little jump in, uh, I guess, station. But ultimately, you know, I think if she could become a, a governor or a, a high-ranking dignitary on Coruscant, she'd probably do that. But um, she mm. uses what she's got, to, yeah, you know, for sure, to claw a little bit of extra uh, power. That's probably true. That if she had the opportunity to be a governor of one of the core worlds, that would be a no-brainer. But you know, this is where she has the most maneuver room, the most wiggle room, and she takes advantage of it. And she's turning out to be quite the classic imperial, isn't she? <laughs> she yes. is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Again, it's a and we nice see a lot of that <laughs> with uh, with Thrawn. Yeah, which is uh, can you know because she's kind of been his opposite number on the political end, and now we're seeing just 
some of the differences being staked out between them, uh, mm. which is which is very fascinating. And now they're both very much on their rise to power. We see some more of the imperial ruthlessness in this next scene, which takes us to the Yincham Dojo, where uh, you know she meets up with Wahir, and you know she she tells her, oh, well, you know we're we're making an arrest, and Wahir asks, you know who, and then Prey says you, and as <laughs> and and I quote, as soon as she said that. Yularen and his ISB agents filed in behind her. And I was like, just as Thrawn had that moment in the previous chapter where it's like, you know, your end has come now. And like the shuttles fly overhead and Price is like, you. And the Imperial agents just like flow in behind her. Just like right on cue. It's like screenplay. (laughs) 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 Which this scene in particular was so powerful where we could instantly see that there was something wrong here that price wasn't just paying an amicable visit to Wahir, and she she pretty much she sells out her home world and then she sells out higher skies which includes driller and wahir and i thought it was very curious that she asks she takes the time to ask wahir if she ever considered price as a friend or if she was just using her the whole time and I think Wahir's answer was very interesting where she says that they were trying to make the Empire a better place for everyone, where after Ranking had fired Price, she knew, you know, Driller had reached out and she knew that she wanted to try and, and make a difference in the Empire so that, you know, unfair things like that wouldn't happen to other people. And it shows the gray area here between what's good and bad. And and Higher Skies, we find out, almost had a senator assassinated. Mm. Um, And, you know, their methods are questionable. But we also know as the readers that, like, the Empire are the bad guys here. Mm. And it's just, you know, I had to take a step back at this moment because, especially reading this from the point of view of Price you know, good and bad, it's it's kind of blurred. And it's it's very much a gray area. Yeah, it was was a strange one because I took from that that Wahir was sort of defending Price, that she didn't like the way Price was treated by the Imperials and the the government. And so for Price to then get her arrested, it's just a ruthless bitch moment. It's (laughs) totally just... She does, does not care for that. She is doing what she can to sort of take down those who are going against the empire i think it's what makes following arinda's story so interesting because she flits between that person perhaps that she once was but in the end she always acts in in self-interest and you know you look at the situation you just described how her friend was spurred into action because of how poorly arinda was treated but then they also they used her for their own ends as well and they they didn't let her in on the on the play as such, they just, they used her as a tool. So there's, there's a grey area always, I think, in, in what's going on in Arinda's story, and it's how she reacts to those situations that kind of, you know, it informs her character, and, and like I say, she she tends to act out of self-interest every time. Yeah, it's, I thought that as, as Wahir was being taken away, we kind of see the flickering light of kind of how you said the, the, the person who price perhaps was before you know before becoming this this ruthless person where she's actually you know she actually kind of blinks back some tears Mm -hmm. as wahir is taken away and we we see the conflict here between you know her ambitions for gaining power against her desire for friends and and this kind of like comes at the culmination of you know selling out her home world selling out everyone she once knew and now selling out the only people that she trusted and she's kind of really reforming who she how she sees herself and reforming herself and i thought it was a very powerful moment where we kind of see maybe the end of the person in price who kind of cares about friends and and all that where she yeah she she sells out what here and you know she's conflicted about it but you know she kind of recovers quickly too and and likes the thought of governor price and Mm. you know she's not gonna let that power go she might have sort of surprised herself with the way that she acted Uh, she sort of storming in there and instantly arresting someone who she thought of as a friend previously and then thinking it all through in that moment when she's being taken away it's sort of an emotional feeling um and it all takes her by surprise but then quickly the facade comes over and she's back to the Arinda that 
we all know. Yeah, well, I mean, she's been somewhat used and abused by the political elite on Coruscant, hasn't she? So she's she's mm. been through a lot, and um, yeah. well, here and and Driller, I guess, were her only friends. And then when she discovers that they're using her as a tool, that's probably what's you know tipped her over the edge to the point where she's she's all in on being ruthless at this point. Just uh, in it for herself, and it's kind of the uh, the Governor Price show from here on out. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so the chapter culminates with, uh, you know, Thrawn and Eli are summoned back to Coruscant, and the long and short of it, Thrawn gets promoted to Commodore, and Eli is promoted to Lieutenant Commander, and I was just like, <laughs> fuck yes, like, finally! <laughs> just sings for this moment in the book, doesn't it? Yeah, it's what everyone's been wanting. I'm pretty sure every reader by now has been shouting to get it, and then... The surprising thing, he ranks up higher than expected. So yeah, it was a, it was a really good moment. Yeah, because he's thinking he's just going to be Lieutenant Vanto, and then they say Lieutenant Commander. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how he's just so not expecting this to happen that he kind of tune out. So oh yeah, he doesn't even hear the part where they so, sort of say two of our own when they're talking about the commendation. He just misses that completely, and he's standing there yeah. thinking about how he's a bit salty. You know, Thrawn's getting another promotion. I'm, I'm, I'm an inside for the rest of my life. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was a great scene. It was a great moment. I, I love it, especially seeing how, how far Eli has come, and now he finally gets the promotion. And and I like this moment where, because Tarkin's at the ceremony, and afterwards he stays back, and you know he he tells Thrawn that Price sends her regards, and he kind of touches Thrawn's rank and says, you know, and I quote, "Consider this a bonus." And and that was just a nice reminder that Thrawn's request here had been for Eli's promotion and that he he didn't care about a promotion for himself. He just wanted Eli to get that promotion. And I, I thought that was a nice moment where, you know, Thrawn mm-hmm. has been looking out for Eli uh, from the start. And, and now they both get the promotion and Thrawn gets a new ship, the ISD Camara, which yeah. I love. I love. That was such a great, Any fan great of moment. The, uh, of the Legends stories about Thrawn would yeah. have been looking forward mm. to this moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because like the... both you and me, Doug, had read the Legends trilogy first. So seeing this was like a, whoa, Yeah, this is when he gets it moment. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So good. And uh, I... I also loved the, the little touch at the end where Eli says, before they left the Thunderwast, he promised himself he would definitely make a point of looking up Lieutenant Gim. Yeah. <laughs> gets the last word yeah. Yeah. shoves this plaque in his face yeah, yeah. go and rub that in that smug dick's face uh, I, I love it you get to see Eli you know have some satisfaction for once too it was it was yeah. so good like compared to the depressing moment end to the last chapter this is much better so. I also um it's like shows that Thrawn had asked Arinda to help with getting this promotion and she'd obviously pulled through so it's it's amazing yeah. to see that she can be trustworthy and that uh they can work together initially i thought that arinda and thrawn may possibly be against each other uh, when we first introduced them but mm. then obviously they work together and get this promotion for eli yeah it's they both have something to gain from each other mm. where because they both yeah. know that they're not friends but Maybe they're they're good business partners right now. So, <laughs> so it also kind of reveals to us the with the exchange between Thorn and Arinda earlier. We find out what Thorn actually wanted, and and it was pretty mm. simple stuff. But it was nice to hear. All he wanted was some expedited repairs on his ship, and and he wanted uh, some recognition for Eli, which was cool. Yeah, the guy doesn't ask for much. You know, he's very simplistic and. Uh, I I like it. it. It was a it was a good moment that you know he's not there asking for governorships of Lothal or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. His, his motives uh, or his desires are a bit more simple than um, than Arenda's, yeah. although he obviously desires the opportunity to rise up, uh, rise up the imperial ranks. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, what they do to get there or what, what they get along the he, way. He feels like he'll get um, there on merit anyway. He doesn't need to, yeah. he doesn't need to <laughs> bribe or coax his way. He's already the emperor's pet, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that leaves us to the end of chapter nineteen uh, on a on a great note. Uh, do you guys have any any closing thoughts before we move on to twenty? Um, nothing particularly. Just the whole amazing interaction between Price and Tarkin was just a 
sort of a standout moment in the book um, and it's one that I'll definitely be remembering for a long time. Yeah, same here. I, I think for me the highlight, well, the two highlights for me were the interaction with uh, with Tarkin and that special moment for Eli. I think yeah. there wouldn't be too yeah. many people reading the book that, that weren't so happy for Eli right there. <laughs> exactly. We've been rooting for him all the way, so. Yeah, and then rubbing it into Gim as well. Yeah, and a little <laughs> cherry on top. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll give my summary for chapter 20, and then we can dive right into that. Okay. Thrawn and the Chimera respond to a distress call from the troop transport Semper, which is under attack by unidentified assailants. The situation becomes shrouded in mystery when Stormtrooper Commander Ayer admits the Semper is carrying something other than troops. The Chimera arrives to find the Semper's crew dead. Thrawn analyzes the bodies, finding that only some of them died to blaster bolts. The evidence suggests a larger enemy physically killed many of the crew. After inspecting the Semper's troop quarters, Eli and Thrawn determined the Semper had been transporting Wookiee slaves. Aboard the Chimera, Thrawn deduces that the attackers would strike the base where the Wookiees were processed, and that they have a saboteur inside the station as well. The base is already breached and under attack when the Chimera arrives. However, Thrawn and his crew are able to trap the breachers and all but destroy the attacking ships. So we are aboard the Chimera to start this off. I just, again, love the fact that we are now on Thrawn's flagship. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, But we're instantly thrown into what Eli deems, because this is in his point of view, he immediately knows that something is wrong, and very seriously wrong when he enters the uh, the bridge. And we see Thrawn with um, a, a bunch of senior officers, his senior comm officer, first officer Pharaoh, and the stormtrooper commander Ayer. Yeah, so they they find out that the Semper is under attack. They're a couple of hours away, and they're the closest ones who can respond with sufficient firepower. And from the distress call that they've gotten from the Semper, they find out that it's under attack by a frigate and two squadrons of V-19 fighters. And I forgot, are those used in the Clone Wars? I feel like I've seen V-19 before. I just wasn't sure. Yeah, they're the ones that look like an upside-down V with a bit in the middle, you know what I mean, that fly. <laughs> it's, hard, it's, hard, it's hard to describe it. But a piece of fact, that, the V-19 was the first Star Wars Lego set I ever got. Oh, really? Yeah, that's so funny, that, I think that, that's one of the first the ones I got for, um, for my son, too. Was it? Yeah. It's, that's it's, so cool. I didn't know they had V-19 sets, I, and I had a lot of Star Wars Lego back in the day. <laughs> yeah, no, I got that in 2008 or something. So. I need to pull a Night Swan and buy some antique uh, Clone War fighters. That is a necessity right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, now. <laughs> I'm going to take a little intermission while I go on Amazon. <laughs> um, but Thrawn, you know, upon hearing that you know, a bunch of fighters are attacking this troop transport. He's very confident that Night Swan is is not behind this one. And he says that, like, overly violent attacks aren't usually Night Swan's style. And we see, um, we see Commander Pharaoh being very kind of, like, impatient and frustrated with Thrawn and trying to dig deep into the situation, trying to find out where the fighters came from, trying to find out motives. And she's just intent on, you know, we got to act now. We don't need to understand where, you know, all this background stuff. And um, I, I thought that it was a cool moment from Thrawn maintaining his kind of like cool in the face of borderline insubordination. And I feel like any other Commodore right there would have just instantly punished that, uh, you know, their first officer for, for, you know, speaking out against them in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a kind of a reoccurring thing that happens throughout the chapter and as we get used to Farrow as a character, she questions him constantly. And, and Thrawn, I think, likes it. He likes it when uh, his officers will ask questions will, and he thinks they'll learn better that way. It's funny, and it's it's almost like we talked before about how he was encouraging Eli with getting him to explain his thinking and then even complimenting on it uh, occasionally. And you see him kind of have a, a similar relationship like that with Farrow sort of starting to blossom. Yeah, I thought exactly the same, that he uses it as a sort of teaching method. They fire questions at him, he answers them and sort of shows them the best way of handling a situation that they can then learn from. 
um, and yeah. say, yeah, we've we've seen it throughout the book him do with Eli, but now he's he's doing it, branching out with other characters now that he's got his big big ship. Yeah, definitely. He's got the big ship. <laughs> but yeah, we see definitely Pharaoh in kind of a, 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 this, a very similar, if not the same position that Eli was in not too long ago, um, which, is, which is a cool moment. He's very willing to teach his, his officers and help them rather than, you know, scold them. or, or mm. He doesn't take umbrage and, and react sort of maliciously or spitefully yeah. um, as, as some other commanders might. He's... Yeah, yeah, it's got a much better definitely. Approach. And so, in this next scene, they are aboard the Semper, and you know, the crew's dead. Uh, they find out that there has been like a, a larger enemy that seems to have like picked up the crew and like slammed them against the walls. And there's you know blood everywhere. It's like a very, you know, it kind of reminded me of the same aesthetic that I got when I read the first chapter when like the Imperials were getting ambushed from this attacker that we had no clue. About yeah. and here we are, you know, a, a ship full of just dead bodies that we have no clue what happened, and now we're in the face of like we don't even know, you know, who killed them. It seems like this this like a much larger enemy, and we're just like, wow, uh, it, it's it gave me kind of gave me the creeps. I was like, wow, this is uh, I haven't had this kind of aesthetic from the book since the first chapter. That's funny, it's a I, different change of, of pace. I'd put the same thing in my notes about how. It's used mm. a lot of sort of writing techniques to, to create mystery and just sort of heighten the the tension in this chapter, very much akin to, to what happened in that first one. Mm, it, yeah. was, it was difficult to sort of clearly work out as a reader what was going on. He was making it sort of as if this was a new sort of enemy that they were coming across, and as we see, it, it is. And... It, like even right from the start it, where it says only today wasn't just another day nor was it just another crisis it sort of sucks you into okay something's going to happen here and then you mm. get the the exchange with Aya and and the mystery around what's going on because mm. they're not allowed to to board with the um with the stormtroopers and yeah it really really sucks you in yeah it did and and once they arrive at the ship and like everyone's dead it kind of like you know their their orders kind of didn't matter anymore where Thrawn and Eli are then able to board with the stormtroopers and there's still just mystery as to what this transport was carrying and Thrawn and Eli are about to enter the troop quarters to see all right you know maybe maybe they can learn something about uh about the crew about who they were actually carrying and they get stopped by this stormtrooper who is refusing them entry to the room multiple times and Thrawn actually raises his voice out of nowhere after asking calmly for a couple of times and that catches both Eli and the stormtrooper off guard and he then like admits them in and then Thrawn tells Eli that he actually wasn't angry and that and I quote some people will not respond to reason others refuse to consider alternatives to their normal patterns of behavior in such cases an unexpected breaking of one's own patterns can be an effective tool and in that moment I actually thought that Thrawn had kind of like snapped but even that was just strategy <laughs> yeah I really like this piece because the moment that he raises his voice you can just tell that he's got this commanding presence and the stormtrooper just completely crumbles it goes yeah okay <laughs> go in <laughs> don't, don't come anywhere near me and then Thrawn's explanation for it is probably the greatest explanation I've ever heard for something like <laughs> raising your voice and I think is the yeah. best thing as a dad or something that you could say to your kid yeah <laughs> I just oh it was amazing 100% agree <laughs> <laughs> can confirm yeah, yeah I can confirm <laughs> Uh, and I think readers of the uh, Legend Thrawn material as well w would mm. recognize this sort of from Thrawn. In those books, he is, I think, a little bit more menacing as a character than what we see in this novel. But, um, yeah, it was good to see him actually chuck his weight around a bit. Kind of <laughs> remind the Stormtrooper of who he's talking to. Yeah. Um, and then right after the Stormtrooper says, all right, you can go, and he just says, thank you. <laughs> so he's right back, to, right back down to zero. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, after they inspect the quarters, they determine, you know, instead of like 
bunks or whatever there there were racks that were attached to the wall there were chain links attached to the wall and they determined yeah that the the transport was carrying slaves and i was just like shit <laughs> um that that was uh it, it kind of struck a, a different chord there uh which we'll get into at the, uh, the end of the chapter but in the next scene they're back aboard the chimera's bridge and they determined that the slaves uh, were Wookiees, and that make, kind of makes sense to the way that you know we saw a lot of the bodies were you know slammed against the bulkhead and picked up and kind of brutally uh, beaten. And Thrawn determines that they that they came from Kashyyyk, but they would have been sent to like a an off-world processing center first. And he and Eli deduced that it would have been uh, an isolated military base, so they were able to uh, identify. The, the most likely position or the most likely base that the, the Wookiees were sent to called Lansend 26. And Pharaoh asks if uh, they should alert the base that they're on the way. And Thrawn has this little little moment where he says, uh, he starts off with, and I quote, consider, Commander. And to this, <laughs> Eli hit a smile because he knew that tone from all those times Thrawn had taught him early on. It was, it was great. <laughs> uh, I highlighted that bit as well. I loved it. It's a little nod to the Thrawn tutor role, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Eli's been through it all before. <laughs> yeah. And he knows, and he's able to sit back and watch instead of just, uh, instead of being on the receiving end, which isn't a bad thing. You know, Pharaoh's able to learn from it, but uh, it's cool to see how far Eli has come where he's not on the receiving end of that now, and he can, you know, observe uh, what, what he had been uh, subject to. So, yeah, Thrawn, after uh, kind of studying a symbol that they had seen etched on the wall of the Semper in, in blood, um, he found out that it's a Wookiee clan symbol that indicated defiance, which would lead to revenge, and they're able to deduce that that the Wookiees uh, and the attackers who had freed them would be heading to Lansend 26, and that uh, they must have a saboteur on the inside of the base because that's the only way they could have known where the, the Semper would be coming out of hyperspace to ambush them and free the Wookiees. So they head off to Lansend 26, and the battle's underway. I'm like, all right, let's go. Um, and they calm the station and uh, were introduced to uh, Colonel Zenik. And, you know, he informs them that they have captured the saboteur and the Chimera just goes to work. They take out the frigate's hyperdrive that's attacking and effectively trapping them there. And I, I love this next part where Thrawn tells uh, Zenik to remove all of his personnel from certain sections of the station. And Zenik is very confused, but he, you know, he complies. And this next part where Thrawn tells Pharaoh that he's marked targets on the station and required pinpoint turbo laser accuracy. And I was like, he's about to fire on the station, <laughs> which, <Yeah. laughs> which he did. And it's like another just totally unorthodox plan from Thrawn, where just as he fired on the cropland of uh, Sifar, he fires on the Imperial Space Station and kind of traps off the sections that the, the breachers are located in. And that's how he wins the battle. Like, they destroy the fighters, and he fires on the station and traps the attackers where they are, and they can't escape. <laughs> it's, a, it's just one of those crazy maneuvers that only Thrawn would think of doing and pulling off. And Zenok down at the station is so confused. He's like, what's going on? This is not, this is not going to work. And the moment it works, the surprise is obvious, and he just says, "Thank you, and well done." It's, it's just perfect. Yeah, he's he's great for these outside the box uh, solutions, and just sort of the quick thinking that leads him to these uh, solutions as well. Mm. It's fantastic. He, I mean, he could have had a, a boarding party sent on to the station to confront the breachers, but he was like, nah, I'm just going <laughs> to trap them, d literally disintegrate the parts that are of the station that are surrounding them and they're trapped where they are. And he also isolates the part of the station where the Wookiee slaves are so they could not escape. And they win the battle, which from my point of view, that wasn't even the interesting part of the chapter because this, this next part, the, the end of the chapter is where Eli approaches Thrawn. And he asks him what they're going to do about the Wookiees. And Thrawn said that they'd leave them there. And I'm just going to take a moment to read this section, uh, and then we can talk about it. And I quote, Vento is silent a moment. I'm not completely comfortable with the idea that the Empire is using slaves, sir. 
terms are not always as they seem, Commander, Thrawn said. They are called slaves, but they may, in fact, be indentured servants. They may be prisoners working off their sentence. They may have sold themselves into slavery as a means of repaying debts to others on their world. I have seen all those situations at times. You really think that any of those are likely? No, Thrawn said, his tone hardening. But it does not matter. However, these beings were pressed into service, and they are now imperial assets. They will be treated as such. Understood, Commodore. Which ends the chapter, and uh, this... Mm. Uh, mm. <laughs> there's, there's a lot here. I, I, I just... It, it's such a defining moment where, as similar as we've seen Eli grow to Thrawn, this is a big moment where, you know, Eli's probably never going to kind of he's never going to be exactly like Thrawn because of a moment like this what what did you guys think I thought it was a big highlighting point that Eli is is not this imperial person who is in it for the empire he's not there to be a nasty person and so he's seeing these slaves and clearly sort of feeling sad for them as you would have done in the previous republic before the empire whereas Thrawn is saying there's not much that can be done and they are now part of the empire it's a different way of thinking that I don't think will ever change yeah I mean Eli obviously he's not willing to do whatever it takes to you know advance in the empire or to please the emperor he's a he's a person with a similar moral compass to what you or I might have. Mm. And Thrawn here, I think, you know, he is, at the end of the day, he he tends to think very logically. He's come to the point that, okay, regardless of what's happening with these people, I don't think he likes it, but he understands that he can't change it. So he will just move on in a, in a very, fairly sort of cold and, and matter-of-fact way. Uh, whereas Eli, it affects him quite, you know, quite heavily I think because the possibilities that Thrawn lays out and he's not wrong those are all possibilities that he's seen before but he knows you know that they're not probable and I just you know in the end I don't I think I agree with you Doug I don't think that he necessarily agrees with what he's seeing but one of the things that we've learned about the Chiss is their loyalty and he's pledged his loyalty to the Empire and the Emperor and even that aside, we've seen that he views others, you know, pr- pretty much anyone else that's not him a- as assets. You know, I, I think he-, he says he doesn't view them as, uh, as slaves as much as assets to the empire. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think to him, I don't even think it's a moral question here. I think it's, he's just looking at it logistically and kind of just this this cold objectiveness about it. And... Mm. You know, I think at the same time here, we, we are reminded, though, that Thrawn is a villain here. Uh, ultimately, in, in the grand scope of Star Wars, he is one of the villains, and we're kind of reminded here, and like you guys had said, it separates him from Eli, where you know, Eli will never be comfortable with this. And, I, you know, props to Eli for even asking about it. And I think it was just a very defining moment where, uh, you know, Eli sees what the Empire is doing wrong. Because up until then, he, he's... You know, he's been fine in his servitude towards it. It's kind of like the, the governing body that he is living under, and he doesn't necessarily have a problem with it. But now he, you know, he learns that the, the, the terrible truth that they are using slaves. And I, I don't know, it, it was a, a deep yeah. moment to, to end the chapter. And, you know, I, I love Thrawn. It's just like, I think in this moment, maybe uh, yeah. just viewing things from a, a cold, logistical point of view it's kind of a downfall where it's you know they're they're going to leave the slaves where they are and you know whether he can or can't do anything about it he's not going to yeah Yeah, and it it further highlights his lack of emotion or any sort of sympathy or empathy that he can feel as Eli can clearly sense that these are these are troubled Wookiees that are being most likely sort of tortured and made to work against their will but he's Thrawn just sees them as bodies that do work rather than having any sort of feeling towards them yeah i mean we we see sort of time and again that he 
actively seeks to avoid casualties. He, you know, he probably does have some sense of empathy, but he will look at the situation and and realize, you know what, I can't do anything about this. I can't free these wookies. You know, that would be directly opposite to to what my mandate is. So he will just flush it. You know, like okay, it is what it is, and I'll move on. Whereas Elo, obviously, it, you know, it's has a much more human uh, emotion attached to it. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the the things that makes Thrawn as effective um, as he is, is that he doesn't let emotion get in the way of his decision making, where, you know, Eli will always, you know, as long as he is human, he'll always act out of, you know, there will always be an emotional weight to his decisions. And, you know, I think that's, you know, Thrawn's able to set himself apart from that and, and not let his emotions govern his his actions and you know, it, it works out for him you know he's able to do what needs to be done uh, and it's just um uh, i don't know it, it was a powerful powerful moment where mm. we're reminded of thrones you know just uh his loyalty to the empire but also just yeah ultimately he he doesn't let his emotions get in the way and you know he's looking at it from a you know a very objective point of view and and Eli that's that's their parting of ways a little bit so I hadn't um, thought about it before but um it might have been even a little bit of foreshadowing in, in that moment we spoke about where he he raises his voice and Eli attaches a, a very emotional um mm. you know or it has an emotional attachment to yeah. to that kind of uh that kind of way of speaking whereas to Thrawn it's not emotional at all it was just a means to an end Exactly. Yeah. That that's a really good point. Yeah. I think from Thrawn we we've gathered from this book that it's the ends justify the means and he's okay with disintegrating cropland and firing upon an, an imperial space station if it gets the job done. And you know, yeah, like you, like you said Eli's just attaching the the emotion to it and um where where Thrawn is just, it's all about the strategy for him and um, results are what matter over yeah. anything else. Yeah. For better or for worse, it, it was a very, it left kind of a, a heavy feeling with me just to, just a reminder that, uh, you know, that he is loyal to, to the Empire here where, you know, a reminder that they are using slaves um, and there's nothing he can do about it and he's just, he's going to let it be. So that leaves us to the end of chapter 20, a, a deep end to it. Um, but uh, are there any closing thoughts on the, on the chapter before we close out for today? Uh, there were two other things that sort of stood out for me in this chapter. One of them was the ability of Thrawn to work out that the Wookiees were going to attack the base just from the culture of Wookiees and their, the sign that they wrote on the troop carrier. He just really shows his knowledge and oh, brings back the artwork knowledge from the legends trilogy mm. um just to help with his strategy and working out problems it was a great thing to see and then the other thing was the relationship that thrawn and eli now have i've sort of come to the realization that thrawn maybe treats him more as an equal rather than his aide or below him as he always is confiding in him and um, allows Eli to ask certain questions that you wouldn't maybe expect someone else to ask and not get a big telling off from or shouted at. Um, and it's great to see the bond. I enjoyed a few things about this uh, this chapter, to be fair. I, I really loved the little bit of descriptive writing at the start that sort of heightened the, the tension in the chapter. Or not at the start, but when they arrived at... Um, when they arrived at the base uh, and the the battle was sort of already underway. I really enjoyed how that was portrayed. What else I really liked was the sort of coaching that he's starting to do with Faro and, and Eli being almost like he's the senior at school now and he's seeing the, mm -hmm. the freshmen get hazed, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And he's been yeah. there and he can kind of just grin to himself a little bit. I, I sort of, I liked that dynamic. And then of course, yeah, the, the bit we discussed at the end was 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 heavy. It was really heavy, you know. I'm writing some notes on it and sort of thinking about it. Yeah, it was. It was quite a quite a way to close the chapter. 
Yeah, get a little bit of everything, you know, some suspense, some action, and then, you know, some some deep, deep thoughts. So these two chapters um, were really, really great and more defining moments from Arinda Price and then Thrawn and Eli alike. Yeah. And and I like, I like, Hester, what you were saying about Thrawn looking at Eli as kind of an equal now where, you know, I, I never got the impression that he was looking down on Eli at any point. But he was always just side by side and coaching him all the way. And now, you know, Eli is in a position. Mm, yeah, like yeah. like Doug was saying, he's kind of like looking back to watching the the freshman. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a great analogy. That ends chapter twenty. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for coming on for this episode, ra- wrapping up our uh, two episode series. I-, I love it. It was great discussing with you guys. Yeah, it was uh, great to continue on. It's always a pleasure, man. I really enjoy it, and um, I look forward to. Not only uh, listening to, to further episodes, and but hey, you never know, maybe coming back again. <laughs> hey, I would love to have you both. You both are always welcome back on the show, but I, I, I love it, uh, breaking it down with you guys. So thank you so much for, for coming on, guys. And thank you, listeners, so much for listening. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow Outer Rim Reads on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod. And you can find us wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Radio Public, you name it. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts, feel free to give us a good review if you're enjoying the show. Good reviews on Apple Podcasts really help other listeners who are interested in Star Wars literature or just Star Wars in general to find Outer Rim Reads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha. It is produced by Andrew Geha. It is edited by Andrew Geha. And we will be back in two weeks with episode 12. So until then, sit back and enjoy. I steer clear of Dr. Cornelius over there. Word is that his Aqualish friend doesn't like you, and he probably doesn't.